This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. The Latinx community has always been strong and resilient, even in the face of attacks from the President of the United States and immigration policies filled with systemic racism. Despite this, community members have flexed their political power to support and uplift themselves and exercise their rights. A clear example of that systemic racism is in Frederick, Maryland. It has not been easy to organize in the face of Sheriff Chunk Jenkins' 287G program. Racial, pro- racial profiling and the initial lack of political support from Frederick elected officials. On top of that, the COVID-19 pandemic hit and is affecting the Latinx community's health and financial well-being. Despite all of this, the Latinx community in Frederick is finding ways to advocate and exercise their constitutional rights to make their communities safer. While the work is far from over, they are bringing real progress. Today, we'll talk to Jasmine Decola from the Rise Coalition of Western Maryland and Nick Steiner, a staff attorney at the ACLU of Maryland, to discuss immigrants' rights, the 287G program, and community empowering efforts from RISE as we celebrate Latinx Heritage Month. So, Jasmine, Nick, thank you so much for being on Thank You Freely today. It's um, really excited to have this conversation with both of y'all. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. So Jasmine, the first question I have is actually for you. If you can, uh, there's been some recent cases in Maryland where Latinas have encountered police while they were doing just normal activities, um, like driving or eating lunch. Can you talk about some of the concerns you and other Latinx people have had when it comes to public safety and and interactions with the police? Sure. Uh, Well, it's interesting enough that this morning I received a text from a person in the community Uh, saying how two workers were stopped in downtown Frederick by the city police. Uh, We don't know the reasons, and she just sent me a text and a photo. This is what happens daily in here in the county. Uh, We see people are doing their own activities, like you mentioned. Uh, They're working. Uh, We have another testimony from somebody that went to lunch, uh, and they were stopped and detained. So people are really afraid. They, they're really afraid of the police. They're really afraid of their safety. They see a police car behind their car. We're going to get stopped. What's going to happen to us? So it's, uh, we see this often in the, in the county where people in the community are afraid from the police, which it should be the other way around. Um, so we see them in normal activities when they're shopping, grocery shopping. I know uh, from another member of RISE, uh, that there's there see police cars often where they work and they're watching them. They're, they're doing um, racial profiling at them. They see them and they look what they're doing and they feel like if, if I leave work and the police is there, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not going to make it home. I'm afraid they're just going to stop me and take me because they connect police with immigration. So one of the reasons why is that they're afraid of the police because of the program that it is in 287G in Frederick. Thank you. And actually, Nick, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, some of that fear, but also helping to make sure people understand their rights, right? I mean, people in this country, regardless of the immigration status, have rights. What typically happens to people in immigration detention 
um, when they're trying to actually get like a fair hearing, like when they've gotten caught up in this in this um, immigration system, what what typically happens, and what are some rights that they need to be conscious of? A lot of people think that because a lot of immigrants are not U.S. citizens, that the Constitution doesn't apply to them, but it most certainly does apply to them. The protections in our Constitution for due process for equal protection, those apply to immigrants just as much as they apply to anybody else in the U.S. When immigrants get caught up in our immigration enforcement system, oftentimes they'll get put into immigration detention. I want to make clear in the beginning is a it's detention on a civil issue. It's not criminal. They're not being criminally charged with anything. It has everything to do with whether or not they have the right legal documents um, to allow them to be in the U.S. And our immigration uh, system allows for the detention of certain people. But when people are detained in immigration detention, there is, for many people, an opportunity to have a bond hearing. And a bond hearing is basically a place where someone is able to go to an immigration judge and talk about why it is that they shouldn't be continued to be detained in immigration detention, that instead they should be allowed out. What has happened in the past, and actually is still happening in a lot of parts of the country, is um, that in these bond hearings, which uh, there's a lot of due process issues. Um, so in, in the criminal setting, what is usually the case and what most people I think are, would assume to be the case is that the government, the, the prosecutor, the government has to show um, that the person who they're, they're trying to keep in a jail or for, for immigrants, immigration detention, is that the person is a danger to society or that he or she is a flight risk. And that's why that they, ha they have to be in detention. And that in the criminal setting is on the government to prove those things. In the immigration setting, it's backwards. Um, the immigrant has to show that they're not a flight risk and that they're not a danger to society. So they basically have to prove two, neg two negatives to secure their freedom. And the consequences of not doing that means that they get, they have to sit in a jail cell, basically. And, um, and then the other significant due process problem in the immigration bond proceedings is that traditionally the immigration judge doesn't actually have to consider the person's financial circumstances. So they might be, be allowed to be released on a bond set at some monetary value, like say like $20,000, but honestly, who has $20,000 to pay to get out of detention? So what ends up happening is those people who can't afford a bond that high get stuck in detention because they just don't have the money to get out. Those are two very significant due process issues in, um, in our immigration bond system. Can you also talk about the the recent win that we had in, in our case, um, Miranda versus Barr, and what, what the difference that victory is making for immigrants in Maryland and beyond. To challenge those two due process issues that are happening in immigration court, we brought a lawsuit uh, on behalf of three individuals who, who had a bond hearing and had these 
due process protections denied to them. And we uh, won a preliminary injunction um, reversing these uh, procedures for people who have to go through um, the Baltimore Immigration Court. So basically now the system in, in Baltimore and in Maryland is, 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 is how it should be. You have the government having to show that the person is a danger or a flight risk in order to justify holding that person in detention. And now the immigration judges in Baltimore have to consider somebody's ability to pay when they set a bond. It's having so far a pretty significant impact um, on the way that these bond proceedings are going. Uh, one of our clients, um, the first time around before we brought this lawsuit, had a $20,000 bond set um, and he obviously couldn't afford it. So he sat in detention for months. And, uh, af and after we brought this lawsuit and secured the preliminary injunction, uh, reversing the procedures in, in Baltimore's immigration court, he got a new hearing. And as a result of that hearing, he got released on a $0 bond and released on an ankle monitor. So the impact that it's having is quite significant. And it's, and it's reducing the number of people who are unjustifiably being held in immigration detention. The Federal County Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Jenkins, has for over 10 years promoted the 287G program in the county. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the 287G program is and also why is it problematic? The 287G actually refers to a section of the immigration code. The program is essentially um, a way for local law enforcement officers to do immigration enforcement, which is usually the job of the federal government, not some local law enforcement agency. And what the program does is over a few week period, train a local deputy, local police officer to basically do what an ICE officer does um, in terms of immigration enforcement. The program currently exists in Frederick County, in Harford County, and in Cecil County. Um, and then it, it exists in other places across the country. Um, but in Maryland, it's limited to those three, three counties. It is limited to the jails. So when people are arrested and booked in a jail, they're asked questions about their immigration status, where they were born. If you weren't born in the U.S., if you're not a U.S. citizen, they can begin uh, deportation proceedings against you. Really, what, what the the program is, is this intersection of criminal and immigration law where um, you have a local police agency doing the job of the federal government, um, which is totally inappropriate and also contributes to the idea and criminalization of, of the immigrant community when, when really um, the immigrant community is um, just trying to live their lives and it stigmatizes an entire community, most especially the Latinx community. One of the biggest problems with the program is that it encourages racial profiling in the community. Uh, when a local pol police officer sees somebody who they think, who they suspect might be undocumented, they'll try and arrest them just for the purpose of bringing them into the detention center so that they can 
quote unquote legitimately ask questions about their immigration status. Um, and really all it is is just a way of targeting particular people in the community and it otherizes them and stigmatizes them and makes it so that the police are really not there to protect everybody in the community and instead target particular members of the community. And Jasmine, I wanted to ask you about um, about the impact that this program is having on the community, but um, also what uh, residents of Frederick are doing to fight back against this program as well. Yes, there has been a huge impact since 2008 that was implemented this program here in Frederick. Uh, a lot of the community, like I mentioned before, are afraid to even contact the police, even if they're, they're a victim of a crime. They feel actually less safe because a lot of people, criminals are coming to the neighborhood and they know that they cannot report them. We have come together as a community and get involved with them. Uh, we also have a group in Facebook. It, it was great to have this group where people have come to us, feel like we they can have that trust with RISE and talk to us about many different testimonies that they have. And one of the things that we have come to them is inform them, inform them about the program, inform them of what's going on. And after all of that, we have come with two rallies during the summer, actually that happened in July. We came together, we did a rally, a current rally was to defund the sheriff. We all got together and we dropped to executive John Garner and we wanted to drop off some of the petitions that we actually collected from the community, especially what happened during the crisis. And we also had a march. Uh, we wanted to have to defund this program here in the county and have those funds allocated for help to families that are in need. So the community has actually come together. There's a lot of more that we can do, but the community has come together. They understand now the program more than before. Mostly was before just, you know, be afraid of the police. This is what's happening um, here in Maryland. Um, immigrants are, are allowed to have driver's license. And like Nick was mentioning before, 60% of the people that were taken from, for the 287G program was driving you know, traffic violations. And yes, people go and do the process to receive their license. And they're also afraid. I mean, they're in need. They need to drive. They have families and they're afraid of driving. They're afraid that, you know, if I get a stop and they're making up that I, I didn't stop correctly, I will get stopped by the police and they're going to take me away. They're going to have a family separation. And a lot of this goes on and on and on. And they prefer not to report a lot of the crimes or report anything that happens. To the police, they reported to community leaders. We receive a lot of messages from people. Or, you know, I'm also very involved in the church, and we know that a lot of the people in the church come to the leaders, the church leaders, and tell them the stories. So what we see here is instead of people coming to the police and, and feeling safe, they actually move against them, and they, they go towards other people, and they don't report things that it needs to be reported. And there's, that's a huge impact. And also there's a lot of terror. Kids are terrorized about the police. And that breaks my heart because they feel like the parents will be taken from them. They know the story, they know what to do. They know if the police come, they stop their parents, they take the parents. They're afraid, they, they're really afraid. And we see this a lot in school. I know that uh, from another member of RISE, she tells her the story. She used to be a lot uh, involved in the schools and the PTA, she sees, she's seen a lot of the kids afraid cry 
about this program and it's uh, we bring a lot of awareness not only to the latinx community but to everybody in general in the community of frederick and we've seen a lot of the involvement there and and now they're more educated because a lot of people didn't even know about the program could you also just explain to our listeners for those who don't know what is rise RISE is a coalition to help immigrants in the community it's in Frederick. It's a Western co coalition. So it works with Hagerstown and Frederick counties. And what we do is we help out with resources, especially with the 287G. And also, we also have help during the crisis and connect people with the resources, nonprofit organizations that can help out during the crisis. So it's mostly to help immigrant communities. And also, uh, can you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, Latinx uh, Heritage Month? Can you talk a bit about some of the things that you are proud of, um, of, the, of the Latinx community and, and how Latinx communities really come together to fight for better, better Frederick or better Western Maryland? Well, I am actually, I can speak for myself and the community as well. I am very proud to be Latina. And uh, one of the reasons why is that the community is here in the United States. We're an immigration community. I am second generation, uh, but we have the American dream. And one of the reasons why people are very resilient and they're willing to fight for what's right. We're willing to be there and, and raise our voice. And I'm very proud of that. They wanna fight for the generations to come. They wanna make sure that we change, there's a change in the county because they're not moving from here. They're not going anywhere. They wanna make sure that we have a different Frederick for the future. We have a Frederick that for the children that are growing up or the new generations that are coming, we know what the American dream is all about. It's about fighting, not giving up and looking forward for the goals. And one of those goals is to have a safer community where people can be here and not be afraid of the police, not be afraid of or just being yourself, even to speak your own language. You're not being, uh, they're not telling you, hey, sh quiet down, don't speak your language. No, that's not what we want. We, we want a community where we can actually embrace our culture, embrace everyone's differences. And I think that I'm very proud of that we are that community. The Latino community is not one color or you just one ethnicity. No, we are different. We all have different uh, cultures but we all become one and we understand that. So I am very proud of that. And I know that the community is looking for that change, is moving forward and they have connected with the, the change and the, we wanna see difference. And that's why we have raised our voice. And I'm very proud though, because even if they're afraid, that doesn't stop them. Oh, well said, thank you. Thank you. And Nick, can you just uh, talk a bit about what do you want immigrants to know about their rights, particularly when they're interacting with the police? Like what are some things that everyone should be aware of and should make sure that they can remember, uh, you know, to, to not be as afraid when they're interacting with police? The constitution applies to everybody. It makes no difference if you're an immigrant or not, if you're a US citizen or not, the constitution applies to you. And so as part of that, when someone is interacting with the police. I think it's important to remember that people always have the right to remain silent, always. If you're being stopped by police, 
you should exercise that right to remain silent and tell the officer that you are exercising that right to remain silent. Police like to do gotcha moments and use what you say against you. And the best protection that you have against that is is to exercise your right to remain silent. And also everybody has a right to an attorney. The criminal, the immigration processes and systems are very complicated and no one should have to go through that alone. So it's really important to ask for a lawyer as soon as you can and not to consent to searches of your person or your vehicle if an officer or an immigration officer is trying to search you. It's very important to say that you don't consent, that you don't agree uh, to a search. It's very important to exercise these rights. Make sure that you are assertive and tell the officer these things and exercise these rights because the police, it's their job to get these things out of you. Um, and it's very important for everybody to know what their rights are when they're interacting with police because the consequences could be so catastrophic. No, I think that's it's very important to know um, when people are interacting with the police. Uh, it, it can go it can go negatively very quickly. And we've seen, uh, I think we've all seen too many videos of that happening. Jasmine, can you talk a little bit about how RISE has supported the immigrant community in Frederick, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic? We have come with two initiatives. Um, one of those was to create a fundraising through the GoFundMe. One of the reasons why was because a lot of the immigrant families didn't receive the stimulus check from the government. And most of the time, they didn't even receive any help from the local government as well. So we decided to fundraise. Our goal is $50,000. The beginning, we took about almost two months to raise $30,000. It was very hard, but we were able to uh, raise $30,000 and help 50 families, 55 families. We received 200 and some applications. Uh, to receive this help. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough and this was only open for about three days. So we had to close the application because we couldn't help everyone. So we decided to do this and we still fundraising. We still have until September 1st to collect the $50,000 to almost there. We still have left $4,000, which is huge, huge for us. But we did this, and so we're looking forward to help 150 families left. Yes, we don't, we're not going to give as much money as we, as we help the other families, the beginning families. But we, we might be able to help them pay a bill, a utility bill, or, or, you know, buy food. And another initiative that we also had was to create some, a petition where people would give their signatures and, you know, speak about their needs. So we actually did this and we collected about 400 signatures and, and about 200 petitions that we share with um, John Garner, our county executive, and let them know the huge need that the community has here in Frederick. That is not only um, the community that we usually help out. The undocumented uh, community is very different. They go through different struggles and we see them especially when there's crisis we let the government know what are their needs what's going on we also let them know about the almost getting evicted a lot of people didn't pay rent they have backed up rent and so we talk about you know 
how can we help these communities? And thank God they opened up assistance where they receive money from the CARES Act and they're included people with IT numbers. IT numbers is, is a, it's a, a identification number for tax purposes, uh, for people that doesn't have social security numbers. So they're able to help out the community, but yet we find another problem. Many of the requirements, people weren't able to apply since, you know, they work under the table. So they would need a letter from their employer telling them, hey, you know, you couldn't work this time because we closed the restaurant or we, we stopped having contracts with um, any construction. They get paid cash, some people. So they're not getting the employer letters telling them, you know, how affected they were through COVID-19. Some people stop lease. They don't have a contract directly with the landlord. So there's all the struggles. There's always something um, going on. Some people were able to benefit, some weren't. But we, we work hard as RISE to help out as much as we can to connect people with the nonprofit organizations who are giving food, connecting with the people that they can connect with the schools so they can help them out during virtual learning, uh, where they can go, who they can speak to. So we did a lot of initiatives during um, the crisis and we continue doing this, especially now that the schools are gonna open back again and they're gonna do virtual learning, just to connect with the community and the direct people that they can go to. So there have been a lot of struggles, but we have been there helping out as much as we can. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that you're able to do to come together to support people, both like leveraging the power of the government, but also leveraging the power of the community. Por favor, uh, díganme por porque las familias que viven en Frederick necesitan fondos del gobierno. Las familias necesitan fondos del gobierno porque hay una necesidad muy grande. Siempre se cree que las la, 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 la comunidades latinas siempre la dejan atrás. Pero en realidad son las comunidades que necesitan más ayuda. Siempre hay disparidades durante la, el, el tiempo y ahora durante la crisis se ha visto más. Eh, la, la asistencia en efectivo es algo de la, lo que nosotros hemos estado peleando que se necesita para la comunidad porque hay más flexibilidad. Las personas pueden aplicar y pueden utilizarlo. Nos dimos cuenta de que en el programa de asistencia de renta Muchas personas no pueden aplicar porque han pedido préstamos por sus amistades, familiares y ahora tienen pues cargas de deuda de las cuales no pueden pagar. Entonces eh, no pueden aplicar porque no tienen esa carta de renta atrasada, pero tienen deudas y así hay su sucesivamente muchas historias y donde la, la comunidad latina siempre es la comunidad más olvidada durante las crisis y necesitamos el apoyo del gobierno que ayude a la comunidad. El COVID no discrimina a sexo, estatus eh, migratorio, no discrimina a nadie, así que no deberíamos discriminar a la comunidad indocumentada tampoco. So this next question is for both of y'all. You know, you know COVID-19 is really making the country uh, re-examine some long-standing issues like systemic racism and the role of the police. Post the pandemic, what do you hope or like the one or two things that you hope to see happen where we are supporting the Latinx community in various ways and also addressing some of the systemic um, immigration issues that we that we face in this country? One thing that I, I think the pandemic has um, kind of 
brought to light very significantly is the significant impact that immigration detention has on families and how truly unnecessary immigration detention is. So the the COVID-19 pandemic has um, been hitting immigration detention centers very hard and a lot of people are contracting the, the coronavirus and a lot of the people who are in immigration detention are vulnerable to serious illness or even death because of underlying condition, medical conditions that they might have. And courts across the country have been ordering people released from immigration detention. And and I think, I mean, we're seeing um, through the Miranda lawsuit and other lawsuits, just how the idea of immigration detention, it, it just, it doesn't need to be that way. There are alternatives to detention. People can still remain with their families um, without having to go through this awful, awful traumatic process of being held in in a cage, taken away from their family. And it's just unnecessary. And I think the pandemic is really showing how unnecessary it is and how reliant ICE has been on detaining people when really they could just be let out on alternatives and still be able to quote unquote enforce our immigration laws or have people attend their immigration hearings without having to spend so much money um, making the lives of immigrants so miserable. One thing that I, I would really like to see coming out of this pandemic is a shift away from detaining people and a shift toward allowing them to allowing people to stay with their families um, and rely on alternatives to ICE detention. So what I, I do hope to see in the community, especially in our county, is to see more involvement from our governor, our government officials. I know that at the beginning they mentioned to us that they didn't know what's happening in the community since they don't hear about it. They don't know they're not involved. So I, I feel like we need to have more involvement from the government in the community that they care, that, that the community feel that, that they are actually caring about the community, that they're actually involved, that there is actually civic inclusion. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see that our community is more included in everything. Even just to have the community who doesn't speak English involved in the decision-making of if kids were able to go to school, but yet there was not in Spanish uh, in meetings that people can understand or the inclusion of even that make decision-making. So I think I, I love to see that there's more civic inclusion. I think that's, that's the goal. I, I, I love to see that uh, because people do feel like we are a forgotten community. And I do not want to feel that way. I don't want to feel like they feel that there's segregation in things, you know, and, and they, they feel that way. Um, but I would like to have that inclusion in our community after all this, after we've seen what's going on and how we have raised our voice. And I will, ha I will want to have our voice more louder and louder so the, co the government hears us more and they're more involved in our community, not only because they have to be involved, but because they care.
Absolutely. And just wanted to also give y'all an opportunity, like on, on the topic of, you know, before Latinx Heritage Month and also, you know, in thinking about our immigration system, is there any other things you want the community or like the officials to know about um, so that they can, in this moment of us all reflecting on what, what this country is, you know, what this country can be, um, you know, what are some things that you'd like people to also consider? I mean, another thing I think that the, the pandemic has kind of shown about our society is the immigrant community is just so essential to how life works in the United States. I mean, immigrants make the majority of the essential workers that are like keeping our country going right now, our food, I think like without the immigrant community, I don't know what this country would look like, <laughs> but it wouldn't be a better place. I don't know if I can add anything extra to that, Nick. I think that like Nick said, is we need to learn to value culture, who people are, where they come from, because in diversity and different culture and different languages, we can find a lot of enrichment that can bring to our, our country, to our government, to our people, to our communities, for education, and also to value that there's people out there that are willing to do the work that people are not looking to do. And they do it happily, and they do it to bring income to their houses and their essential workers that Many of them died during this pandemic because they were more exposed than other communities and other groups uh, of people in the United States. And, and, and it's good to just think about those things. Uh, a lot of kids are left without a dad, a mom, a, a family member, because they had to do the work that they had to do in order to provide for their, their family because one had to bring to their families um, the food, the money to be able to pay rent, the money to be able to buy food since they weren't really receiving any help from the government. And I believe that we need to value those workers, the, the community that actually are essential and essential means that we need them. And not only we're just criminals like we're called, we're essential people for the country. First of all, well said to both on both fronts. Um, and, and thank you uh, both, you know, Jasmine and, and Nick for, for joining us today. I really appreciate this conversation and um, I learned a lot and I think our listeners did as well. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland, because we are still practicing social distancing and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.